Hello, Public Power Underground. I'm a regular listener. It's great to be with you. Uh, it's funny, once I started listening, I started seeing public power everywhere. Just recently, I was looking at uh, Simon Mahan's uh, Energy Twitter post about uh, President Truman and developing the hydro dams in the Mississippi River, River Basin, Norfolk and Bull Shoals. Uh, I don't think they had Woody Guthrie music to go along with it, but they had very similar uh, historical dynamics of uh, public power versus private interests getting those dams built and delivered to uh, load around the region. Uh, and then I was reading uh, just randomly uh, Robert Caro's book about LBJ, and lo and behold, Hell's Canyon and uh, uh, Northwest Hydro comes up as a critical deal to passing the Civil Rights Act. I did not know that uh, of uh, 1957. Uh, at least that's Caro's opinion. I understand it's somewhat controversial, but anyway, kind of kind of interesting. Um, and then, of course, I was deep in the FERC noper, which is something I I do with my spare time. Uh, on uh, transmission planning, and I've been working closely with the large public power councils, Snohomish and other Northwestern interests are uh, deep in that and uh, finding some alignment there. Uh, I know uh, Jofina and uh, the LPPC folks had some concerns about cost containment, and uh, you can find those now in uh, comments of other parties, including the Clean Energy Buyers Alliance, some of the folks that uh, I like to work with large CNI customers who also care about costs and reliability. Um, so anyway, I'm seeing it everywhere. So it's great to be with you talking about my favorite topic, the grid, and just a couple points on that. I, I think it's so important because we have to move large volumes of power across long distances uh, in this country, just like pretty much every country uh, is realizing right now, because two things we want. Uh, clean energy and wind and solar are deployable, but they need transmission to get from the places that they are to the places where people are, uh, as well as to move the power back and forth because it's wind's always blowing somewhere, as they say. Um, but also for the stresses on the on the grid, severe weather is taking out uh, generation, to, uh, you know, turning up load to. Um, high levels in certain places. And, and when you have a grid that's bigger than the weather, then you can always share power from one area to the other, to, uh, to the next. So for both reliability and the clean energy transition, we really need to focus on the, on the grid. So, um, and do it uh, obviously on a, on a regional basis. I know you're uh, talking about uh, resource adequacy regionally, and I know you had Sarah Edmonds on the show and you're talking about markets and you're going to have a show on that EDAM and SPP markets plus, but transmission is the third component of the regionalization that we need. So I'm very glad to be here. started in hard times to bring us all in into the laughter through thick and through thin for public power enthusiasts without and within roll on enthusiasts roll on i'm paul dockery the host of public power underground ground and senior manager of energy resource strategy and planning for seattle city light and I'm Almaz Nagesh, the co-host of Public Power Underground and Power Planner for Tacoma Power. Joining Almaz and I as this week's celebrity guest stars are Rob Gramlich and Kathleen Stacks. Rob is the founder and president of Grid Strategies and co-founder of Americans for a Clean Energy Grid, 
the Watt Coalition, and the Future Power Markets Forum. His distinguished career includes time at the American Wind Energy Association, being an, an economic advisor to FERC Chair Pat Wood III, and serving as principal market monitor of the PJM capacity market. Very impressive background. Welcome, Rob. Thanks, Almas and Paul. Great to be here. Maybe we can insert some applause uh, yeah. in, in post. I didn't bring my soundboard to this one. <laughs> uh, joining Almaz, Rob and I, is Kathleen Stacks. Kathleen is the executive director of Western Freedom and interim chair of the Colorado Electric Transmission Authority. Kathleen served as the executive director of the Colorado Energy Office under Governor Hickenlooper, and prior to that was the assistant director for energy and minerals at the Colorado Department of Natural Resources. Western Freedom is bringing together a coalition of the largest commercial and industrial customers in the West to enable the delivery of low-cost electricity and energy freedom through an efficient and integrated grid system. Welcome, welcome Kathleen. Thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be here. Did I, did I do a good job of uh, reading from your website on what Western Freedom is? <laughs> you nailed it. You nailed it. Nailed it. it nailed it. I could really play Our provocative well. name and everything. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and Rob, did we do a good job of uh, representing your entirety of your? Uh, we did not. I will. I'll just. I'll say affirmatively, we did not do a holistic <laughs> job of your career. Please, um, but it was great. I, I think we did okay, right? Uh, that was perfect. It's painful to hear the long version. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we'll include links uh, in the show notes to both of your longer bios because we cannot capture the uh, entirety of all the depth and breadth. But I'm excited to have you. Are y'all excited to do this? Let's do it. Bring it on. Okay. On Public Power Underground, we talk about the electric utility enthusiasm trifecta of electrification, markets, and people. On today's episode of Public Power Underground, we're approaching the electrification angle through the lens of transmission expansion. We'll talk about a recent DOE study on transmission needs, how generator interconnection processes comport with resource adequacy metrics, commercial and industrial customer interest in electric markets, and the three P's of transmission policy. As always, Almaz will ask an unscripted question in a segment we call Almaz's Insightful Question of the Week. Then we'll close it out with closing thoughts from Kathleen. Before we get started, a quick word from our presenting sponsor. The presenting sponsor of Public Power Underground is the Energy Authority. The Energy Authority is a nonprofit company that specializes in portfolio management and prides itself on leading communities through today's energy transformation. Owned by public power entities, TEA is more than just adjacent. They're as underground as it gets. TEA is on a mission to help clients maximize the value of their assets while meeting their power supply goals. By providing expertise in energy trading, advanced analytics, advisory, and renewable solutions, TEA equips public power utilities with access to state-of-the-art resources and technology systems so they can respond competitively in the changing energy markets. With over 60 other public power utilities proudly partnering with TEA to tackle their energy future, it's time for you to consider breaking ground too. Let TEA help you navigate the uncertain future of our industry by visiting teainc.org to learn more. That's teainc.org to learn more today. Okay, Almaz, take away the first topic. All right. On February 24th, 2023, the Department of Energy's Grid Deployment Office released a draft national transmission needs study. Three key findings were included in the press release. One, 
a pressing need for additional electric transmission infrastructure, two, increasing interregional transmission results in the largest benefits, and three, the clean energy transformation, evolving regional demand, and increasingly extreme weather events must all be accommodated by the future power grid. So the grid's needs will continue to shift over time. The Department of Energy is seeking feedback by April 20th, so it is not too late for electric utility enthusiasts to file comments on the draft report, should you choose to do so. Uh, Kathleen, we'll start with you. Are there any surprises in the report? Any areas you'd like to highlight or anything else on interregional transmission that you'd like to talk about? You know, I think the probably the most surprising piece was that it was 191 pages long. Uh, and so... <laughs> So um, maybe surprising that I actually uh, spent some time with it. Um, this is it was there, there's a lot in it. Um, so I, I would recommend a, at least a at least a skim through it uh, to your to your listeners. Um, I, you know, I think from a content standpoint, there wasn't there wasn't anything necessarily surprising. I think all of those findings are are what we uh, expected to see. Uh, and they confirm that we're woefully short of the transmission that we're going to need across the country to meet the increasing demand for electricity and to meet our climate goals. Um, I think one of the things that that was kind of eye-opening to me was uh, the scale of the need. And the, the report divides the country into regions. Uh, and in each of the regions, it quantifies how many more uh, gigawatt miles, which is a Sort of a term, I think. Then they they flag this in there that this is not a it's not a normal industry term, but but they define it. Um, uh, but how many how many gigawatt miles of new transmission and how much new transfer capacity is going to be needed between regions uh, to meet a moderate load and a high clean energy future? Uh, and so you know because we're looking at the West here primarily, a uh, couple of things that I'll that I'll just sort of call out um, between the Northwest and the mountain regions. So the Northwest is obviously Washington, Oregon, a little bit of um, Idaho. Uh, and then the mountain region is, is really kind of uh, Colorado, um, New Mexico, um, kind of the, the, the inner, the, the middle of the middle of the West, really. Um, between those two regions, the report anticipates that there's going to be approximately a need for approximately 26% of new transfer capacity by 2035 relative to our 2020 numbers, which is not a small number, but nothing compared to between California and the mountain region. Uh, there's a projection of a 204% increase of import capacity uh, relative to the 2020 system, and then 132% increase between for in new transfer capacity between California and the Southwest. So what we what we need in just in the in the western part of the United States is enormous, um, especially compared to what we have right now. Um, another another couple of things that that I sort of pulled out uh, of interest, I thought were um, despite the need for a lot of investment in infrastructure, uh, there are going to be cost savings because there's going to be more tra more transmission is going to enable more access to low cost generation that right now um, is either hard to get to or has additional costs, um, you know, because you can't, we can't build it because you can't get it on because, because of the interconnection queue issues. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about that, I think um, later in this episode, but it's, but 
we need more transmission to enable more access to these lower cost resources. Um, and then I think the other, just related to the West, one of the, the other things that's worth calling out is how inefficient um, the transmission planning is here uh, because we don't have an RTO or an ISO. And so right now we've got 38 different balancing authorities, each planning for their own little territory uh, and, and thinking about what their needs are. Um, and it's, and they're not, the, the bigger picture really isn't sufficiently being taken into account. And we certainly have, um, some regional transmission planning authorities with, um, the West Connect and, um, Northwest Power Pool. Um, you know, there's WEC, we have, we have these regional planning entities, um, but the, but the utilities themselves, as they're thinking about, what they need on their own system, they're only planning. They're only planning for a tiny little piece of it, uh, and so we're not having this big, comprehensive look about what are the needs um, for the future. And so I think this is a this is an area uh, that's really important to us that that we think the the benefits of an RTO really deliver. Um, you get that regional planning. You get that um, you know one entity sort of managing and operating the system in a much more efficient. Uh, and cost-effective way. Uh, so, I, so those were some of the, the highlights that I pulled out of that report um, that really kind of struck me as as very clearly articulating what kind of needs we have across the country, but in the West in particular, um, and that are that are harder to to even get to because we because we don't have a regional transmission organization in place in the West. We're, we're going to get to like the three P's of transmission. And I would love to get your thoughts when we get to that topic, Rob, about how, how an RTO solves maybe some of those or doesn't solve all of them to get to Kathleen's closing point, though. Uh, um, I, first, I want to talk a little bit about like gigawatt miles and to kind of underscore like you, you referenced the percentage increase of transmission uh, transfer capability. And Rob, in prep for this, you sent around a, uh, a speech from President Truman. He made this joke about the Big Shoals Dam, about like people don't understand acre feet, they understand a gallon. Um, right. Do you have any like, can you can you rationalize for us or put into other terms what a gigawatt mile means for electric utility enthusiasts, people who should like get some scale around this uh, and then talk about that transfer capability we need? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, that was funny about the acre feet um, yep. and uh, gigawatt miles. I, I I like the uh, I like the term and the concept. I hope it spreads and becomes more familiar to people. But uh, the simplest, I think, is what uh, Kathleen pulled out. Some of the percentage increases. I think people can relate to that most easily, whether it's twenty five percent or two hundred percent. That you know, people can r relate to that. Um, but you know, gigawatt mile uh you know as a gigawatt for a mile so um some of those same regions between regions in the west had a, a few thousand gigawatt miles needed between them so that that's like you know three gigawatts going a thousand miles across the whole region or, or something like that uh which is a lot um uh or you know uh uh it, it well so is it really just trying to get to the distance element of the yeah. transfer? Like, so you're trying yeah. to really be able to communicate a distance idea. Yeah, exactly. You, you, you okay. want quantity and distance together. So it's a combined metric. 
Okay. If, if okay. You can have any infinite numbers of quantity and distance multiplied each by each other and get the same gigawatt miles. So how useful of a, oh, anyway, that's just me going down a rabbit hole. Don't answer that. Yeah. <laughs> well, but you, like you like this, Rob. You said you like this and you want us to use it. Let's go down that rabbit hole for just another minute or two. Like, okay. is that valuable that uh, the shorter distance but higher volume also conveys a similar point about investment needed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, a, a gigawatt for one mile obviously is a lot cheaper than a gigawatt for 500 miles, right? There's 500 more. So, you know, so the gigawatt mile translates more into how much investment do you need? How, how much consumer cost are we are we talking about? Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's still, I think, easier for people to think about what percentage increase do we need or what transfer capacity in gigawatts do we need between region A and region B? And one of the other... Oh, go ahead, Kathleen. I'm oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I think it's also, it's a nice way to think about the tie between the generation and the transmission, because we're needing this much generation, you know, 2,500 gigawatts of generation that we have to move across, oh. you know, those miles as well. So I think it's a, it's a nice way to think about the two together um, in this report. Yeah. And it's just an astounding, it's just an astounding need. Yeah, it's a big need. Um, and can we talk a little bit about, because one of the conclusions that may be insightful, but probably not surprising, is that doing this actually provides the greatest benefit. Like It actually is the investment that provides the greatest net benefit. Can we talk a little bit about that? Because it, while it's probably not surprising, that the more ability to move stuff, the more like benefits you have. But can we talk, any insights there? Yeah, I think that's really important uh, is the, is the the cost effectiveness of transmission long term, and that stems mainly from the uh, the economies of scale, where you know you build it bigger, it's cheaper per megawatt delivered, right? And that's a fundamental dynamic with this transmission system, where in most of the country we're kind of incrementalizing this problem, doing a little bit here, a little bit there. Well, that's the most expensive path. We're on the most expensive path. A cheaper path would be to proactively plan for the future need and get to the higher voltage and therefore cheaper per megawatt uh, scale. So that's why all of us in the industry have this challenge of, okay, well, let's agree as much as we can on what does that future look like? What is the resource mix? Where are the resources? Where are the loads? And let's plan the most efficient grid for that. If we do that, that'll be a lot more um, efficient and lower cost of delivered energy for everybody over that term. The other element I wanted to get into on this topic was to talk a little bit more about like, it's a daunting task. We have to do, it's like 30% and 200% are the numbers that stuck in my head when I rounded up from what you were saying, Kathleen. Um, and I don't want to leave on a doomerism, right? Uh, uh, I follow Jigger Shaw on Twitter. I suspect most of us do. And he's got this idea about like, Upgrading existing transmission can be a way to do this, um, and it isn't as daunting as we're going to get into the three P's. Then one of them's permitting for new stuff, but you, you probably have less permitting if you're upgrading. What's the, what's your take on that, uh, Kathleen or Rob, around upgrading existing versus building new? I'm, I'll jump in. I mean, I think this is this is one of those things where it's you've got a pie. A lot of different pieces to your pie, and you can you can build it in different ways. But you're going to need a whole pie 
to actually get to where we need to go. And so I think, um, you know, reconductoring or making the, your existing lines more efficient and upgrading those is a really good piece of the pie. And we'd be silly to leave that on the table. Um, that doesn't alleviate the need for new lines though. So I think there's, you know, I think about this in, in some ways, like the, the sort of generation mix too. We're not going to solve all of our electricity needs and climate needs uh, just with wind and solar and batteries. We're going to need a whole bunch of other things too. This is sort of the same thing. I think there's there's multiple ways to get at the 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 challenge that we have ahead of this, and I think this is this is a this is one that's worth exploring. Yeah, and I would add that uh, I think I think Jigger and his boss, Secretary Granholm at DOE, are uh, are onto something here in that uh, advanced conductors, some of which came out of DOE research, uh, some are composite core instead of uh, steel core for the um, structural strength. Um, uh, have some properties that are really valuable, and you can uh, you can squeeze more out of the existing rights of way. So we have these rights of way around the country; they're extremely valuable and and scarce, and it's going to be hard to get new ones. So the more we can squeeze out of those existing rights of way, uh, the better. Uh, superconductors, composite core, and other advanced conductors uh, can do that. Uh, just sometimes reconductoring taller towers. Um, can can do that. Grid enhancing technologies can do that on existing lines. So I think we're really going to need these these new approaches. It's great that I think DOE intends to fund some of these with some of its new programs. And I would hope that uh, system planners and PUCs around the country would would look at these uh, opportunities to 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 do that uh, again. Um, it's sort of a, uh, you know, an overall cost framework that you have to have. You might pay a little bit more for the conductor, but the net benefits uh, can easily be twice as high because of the additional power that you get out of it. And some of these are uh, low sag, so less wildfire risk and other things that are particularly important in the West. Ah, just the one last thing, given the scale of, of what's needed, did that report say anything about the technical feasibility of, I mean, I know there's a, there's going to be a lot of, of, of challenges that have nothing to do with whether it's technically feasible or not, but just, is it technically feasible in that timeline? Yeah, well, the report is pretty neutral on the the technology. Obviously, you could you could do many gigawatt miles with the traditional, you know, old uh, technology, or you could do it with some of these advanced technologies and more uh, HVDC relative to AC lines. Um, but you know, all of those are are feasible. So it didn't really the report didn't go into that much i think it's sort of leaving that and many other questions like we'll talk about the the three p's in, uh, in a few minutes but um uh it was it was just saying look we need this much delivery capacity between region a and b yeah it kind of purposefully doesn't get into the actual planning of it and where these things need to go i think that's <laughs> they're leaving that for a for another day <laughs> <laughs> Well, and leaving it for innovation, right? Exactly, exactly. They also they apparently have, you know, a good, good amount of money they're trying to figure out how to spend. So we we got hey. one for you. <laughs> well, the feasibility is a good transition to our next topic on the three P's of uh, transmission or policy reform, transmission policy reform. So let's pivot. Um, 
I am a follower of Rob Gramlich on Twitter, along with a, a bunch of other energy Twitter folks. And if I have it right, the three P's of policy reform are planning, paying for, and permitting. And I can also quote tweet you that, in your opinion, two-thirds of the problem with building transmission is cost allocation. And I think my, I, probably because I follow you and a bunch of other people on Twitter, I think that's kind of where I've normalized my expectations as well. Wherein lies what I think is the quagmire of transmission investments. Because um, as we've talked about, efficient investment in transmission is you want to build it to get economies of scale. But if you're building it for load growth, um, really to get the investment back out of that uh, cost that you're deploying, you need to have contracts in place for the full transmission capability. Um, and so you are in this quagmire of needing to be able to monetize capability for load that you're planning for, but is not yet there. Um, so I, I, the New York Times, I think, uh, talked about some of this these issues and published an article on February 23rd, 2023, titled, The U.S. Has Billions for Wind and Solar Projects, Good Luck Plugging Them In, where you, Rob, were quoted um, and had this outstanding comment about the quagmire, quote, Imagine if we paid for highways this way. If a highway is fully congested, congested, the next car that gets on has to pay for a whole lane expansion. When the driver sees the bill, they drop off. Or if they do pay for it themselves, everyone else gets to use that infrastructure. It doesn't make any sense, unquote. Um, I don't know where to start the conversation on this, Rob, other than trying to frame up the just quagmire of all this complicated topic. Um, if you want to start with your two-thirds quote tweets, the New York Times or somewhere else, how can we be hopeful in light of all of this? Yeah, well, I, I do think those are uh, three useful buckets of of the barriers, planning, permitting, paying. Um, and I do think paying, so let's maybe focus on that, is, is the hardest part. Um, uh, because it really is a public good, right? It's just like the highway. Um, you know, you can't just like pass the hat to a bunch of, you know, individual cars to pay for the lane expansion or the original highway. Um, uh, but everybody benefits in, in some way, maybe not exactly the same amount, but there's significant public goods characteristics. So it's a classic public goods problem. Um, you know, normally, I mean, we pay for national defense and other classic public goods and highways through our tax payments. Um, uh, and there there may be, you know, some opportunities to do that going forward. Uh, but, um, you know, we generally have, a, you know, ways to raise capital in this industry. There's no shortage of capital and there's no shortage of willing investors. So mostly we have to make do with our our structure here. Uh, it is a classic chicken and egg problem too, where you know you might have a, a major resource area or a major need, um, and you know which which comes first, the the transmission or the generation or the contracts. It's a sort of we get it stuck in a never ending do loop. So I I think the solution, the clear solution to that is to proactively plan for the future needs. So you make your best assessment of the of your future need. You get all the stakeholders around uh, with states and other key you know, entities um, and make your best uh, assessment of anticipated need. Um, good news is uh, we've, we've done that before. We actually built quite a lot of this type of transmission about a decade ago in the Midwest with uh, MISO multi-value projects. 
Uh, we did exactly that with all the states, 13 states together. Um, Texas did it on its own. They could do it all within the state, but they built a ton of transmission out to West Texas and the Panhandle. Uh, California did it within their region. Uh, Bonneville did some of that with their uh, network open season. Um, Elliot Mainzer at the time uh, worked with the wind industry, so I was involved in that. Um, and so we've we've done this SPP, New England, there are examples. So, but problem is for the last 10 years, we haven't done uh, barely any of it. Our gigawatt miles uh, dr essentially dried up um, over the last decade. So we know how to do it. I think we can get back to it and we can talk about um, policies, but you know, what I've described is essentially what I think FERC proposed in its transmission planning proposed rule of proactively plan uh, and then assign the cost to the, to the beneficiaries. Can I ask, what do you think is different now uh, than 10 years ago? Why is it so hard for transmission to get built now? Presumably the, the same um, issues were present before. Yeah, and I'll just underscore one point before you answer, okay. Rob. Like in like the last 10 years in interest and in, in periods of the record low interest rates, we didn't do it. And Ugh. now we're up against super high interest rates and we yeah. need to do it urgently. But I know. That, that's just an underscore on Maz's point. What happened? Yeah, what changed? Uh, yeah that's, uh, that's really unfortunate. Um, well, I think there are a few dynamics. Um, and I, I recommend the book Superpower by Russell Gold about, um, you know, Michael Skelly's attempt with Clean Line uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but, you know, one thing that happened with a lot of the... Um, uh, plans after that initial round was, first of all, gas prices fell. Secondly, solar fell. And if you wanted to do just some renewables, but you weren't talking about, you know, 30, 40, 50, 80 percent renewables, you could kind of do solar more locally. It's a little bit more distributed, obviously, than wind. Uh, and then also Order 1000 from FERC uh, had the unintended effect, I think, of uh, discouraging utilities who would like to be involved in transmission, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, remove, you know, reducing their role. That was the right of first refusal issue. And then a bunch of utilities didn't want to play in transmission that then got bid out to other third parties. Um, so long, a lot to debate uh, on that. But, um, uh, you know, regardless of who builds, I think uh, we are at a point where I think most people realize again that transmission is is valuable and important. Uh, we, you know, we don't have uh, you know cheap gas prices forever. Um, we're doing a lot of solar, but that's that's uh, not enough. Moreover, we need a lot of transmission for solar as well. So I think our fundamentals have reached a point where uh, it, you know it's time to get get back at it. And all uh, all those you know all those problems are uh, you know the barriers are all solvable. Um, you know, if we did it ten years ago, we can do it again. The vast majority of our transmission network is privately owned. Correct me if I'm wrong. That that is correct. Um, so has it become harder for the investor-owned utilities to get those projects approved in recent years at all? Is that contributing to it at all, or is, does that have nothing to do with it? Well, in the West, you, of course, have so much public land that you need federal permits, and that is a barrier for any very, any long-haul transmission. Uh, those lines uh, can be built, and they are being built, but it's taken them 15 years Um you know, Sunzia, Transwest, um, uh, some of the other lines. 
out there, the, the, the gateway projects, Berkshire Hathaway projects. Um, and a lot of that is federal permitting with multiple federal agencies and multiple federal laws um, and certificates that, that one needs. So that the federal government can do a much better job on those. And I think the Biden administration is, is doing that and trying that. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, but, you know, you, you still have the kind of the cost allocation challenge in that, you know, who benefits? A lot of the, the problem is just like if you, let's say everybody agreed that a line is needed from region A to B, from the Northwest to the mountain region, say like the need study identified, um, you know, if you raised your hand as a developer and said, hey, I want to build that project, who's going to you know, pay for it now. Um, so again, no shortage of capital, no shortage of willing investors, but where do you get your money back from? Who's your customer? Uh, it's an off-taker problem. Now, the off-taker problem can be solved, I think, if if utility load-serving entities um, with uh, involvement from their states kind of said, hey, you know, we need resources from a diverse resource mix. It's time to, you know, sign up for capacity from other areas. That that can work, and that's I think that's needed. That's part of the um, allocation of costs. It could be voluntary; it doesn't have to be through a mandatory regulatory cost allocation process, uh, like sort of MISO did in the Midwest. Uh, it could be you know more utilities stepping up to subscribe to capacity on lines. Um, you know, or it could be a tax credit. We tried very hard to get a tax credit in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act for transmission, but it fell out literally at the last minute. Um, long story there, but that would have made all transmission 30% cheaper. And it's really a shame that we we didn't get that. Maybe there'll be some future opportunity to get that. So to reduce the costs or allocate the costs, I think is what we need to do for this very valuable transmission. So we had like you spoke to opportunities there where you can get like tax credits or federal funds to offset portions of it. Um, I did want to talk a little bit and pull you in, Kathleen, to talk a little bit more about regional transmission organizations and their uh, the, the mechanisms they have for to enable this type of investment and your insights um, about whether that framework is away, like multi-value projects in MISO, uh, Texas's CREZ zones. I think SPP had something like that um, in the early mid-aughts, probably. Can you talk a little bit, Kathleen, because you opened with this and some of your thoughts about the transmission expansion, about the ways regional transmission organizations can help enable this? Well, and I think there's, I think, you know, even to sort of echo what Rob said, I think there are, there are different ways to do it. And, but it is a, with cost allocation, I think, I heard somebody say recently, and it kind of struck me, there's there's only so many different ways to do it. And so we kind of just need to get everybody in a room and start working on it. Um, and I actually think this is one of the biggest challenges that we face to actually getting to that, getting to an RTO in the West is tackling and agreeing on this cost allocation challenge. Um, and I've heard, you know, you, you, you hear from different parts of the different parts of the West, different utilities, different stakeholders who are all concerned that they're going to have to, they're going to have to disproportionately bear the brunt of the cost of future infrastructure build. Um, whether that's 
you know, you hear it from the, the Pacific Northwest, BPA has low transmission costs. And, and we don't want to have to take on, you know, BPA customers don't want to have to take on the costs of somebody else's transmission. We already, ours are already cheap. Don't, don't change mine. You hear from California, um, you know, we're the load. We don't want to have to disproportionately pay for all the transmission for everybody else either. And so everybody, everybody's just kind of, we don't want to, you know, don't make me pay a disproportionate share. And what's, I mean, everybody's going to have to show up and negotiate for their own position. Um, I heard it. I, I heard it referred to as carry your own dead is uh, how yes. it, I heard it referred. Like you're, you got to carry your own dead when it comes to transmission cost uh, burdens. Anyway, not to cut you off, but I, I like was, that. I, think, I like yeah. that. It's a very, there's a, there's a very good image in that, I think. Yeah, good image. Good. <laughs> it's, in, it's interesting. So yeah. dark. Effective. Yes. Yes. Um, but I just, I mean, I think with the, with the RTO, you get to that, that bigger regional um, mindset uh, where you're actually looking at a bigger footprint and how you're planning and how, you know, what you actually need. Again, I think to, to Rob's point about really identifying what that future state needs to be, and then you plan to get there. And um you know how how the the mechanics of how you get there are going to be are going to be challenging to figure out but the rto gets you to a place or or something that 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 plays those you know that that accommodates those needs that that delivers those services whether it's a rto that looks like rtos in other parts of the country or something that we kind of tweak to meet our you know unique western needs where you've got you know much bigger uh, geographic space. You've got much, your, your popula- population, uh, centers are much further apart than you, than you find in other parts of the country. You have enormously diverse, uh, political and policy views across the, the West. Not that yep, you don't do. have that diversity in other parts of the country, but it's, it's pretty diverse <laughs> here in the West. And, and so creating a system that actually can accommodate some of that diversity, um, is is I think we've got a nice opportunity to do that right now. Um, and again, I think we've this the, the RTO will 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 force us all to work together to figure out we each have our own individual needs, but we're not going to be able to meet our own individual needs unless we're working with with others. Whether that's a whether your priority is a climate priority or it's a, a reliability priority or an economic priority. You're, there's going to be benefits that fall in each of those categories, um, but you got to. But we, but we're all going to have to work together uh, to get to that to, to maximize those benefits for ourselves and for our neighbors. Hey, Paul, can I piggyback on that a little bit? Absolutely, please do. Yeah. So, in support of the RTO model. I think it's useful to look at SPP and MISO regions, um, which, by the way, have uh, pretty much all vertically integrated utilities like much of the West. Um, And uh, when they put the RTO in place, transmission planning was an important function. And um, when they put plans together, one thing they found was uh, when they Put these portfolios of lines uh, and then went into the permitting process. Uh, like in the MISO MVP case, uh, 16 out of 17 got through the, the permitting and 
the dynamic in those permitting proceedings at the state level was a senior planner from MISO would come in and be a witness uh, and say, as an expert, you know, here are the reliability benefits and other benefits of this line. And here are the, all the other options we consider. Turned out this was the best one for everybody. Here's how the state benefits. Well, and that was really helpful in getting those you know decisions made. You compare that to the the batting average, that sixteen out of seventeen batting average relative to independent merchants going around to states and saying, "Hey, I'm crossing through your state. Please permit me." Uh, you know, much lower batting average. And who's this investor from? You know, wherever New York or Houston, anyway. Um, and so that uh, that independence and expertise really helps. Uh, also, I think they can plan efficient portfolios. Like there's very little confidence, I think, that most stakeholders have in that whatever a random utility or third-party developer come up with is like the optimal configuration. But when you have the independent regional experts, they can consider all those options and find a efficient you know, set of technologies and, and routes and paths and deal with loop flow across wide geographic areas. Uh, and those sorts of things. And they have the the tariff. So that ultimately you decide on the right investment and you can just put the cost in the single regional tariff and you recover the cost that way, which is wonderful from an investment standpoint. The investors know they're getting their money back. Uh, you get good cheap cost of capital. Um, so, um, and it's a forum for the difficult cost allocation. Cost allocation is never easy. It's not easy in MISO or SPP, but they did have a forum for it and they were able to evaluate who benefits by how much and allocate costs, you know, as the law says, in a way that is roughly commensurate with uh, beneficiary pay. So that is very valuable. I mean, I recognize in the, in the West, uh, we're pretty far away from uh, having that outside of Kaiso, and we might see more sort of utilities working together. It seems like they're all looking to their neighbors and starting to look outside their footprints, uh, which is great. And then maybe they're part, you know, maybe they'll partner with uh, independent uh, uh, transmission as well, or do joint ownership with public power. All of that would be great progress. Uh, but I, I do think uh, folks should really look at the independent regional uh, model long term that that an RTO can provide. Yeah, it sounds like you spoke to like the two of the three P's there, right? The permitting and the paying for that gets helped by the RTO. And, and the last one, the planning is what they do. That's like a core function of it. So uh, right. at least tackles some of that stuff. Amaz, did you have a follow-up question in there that you wanted to get to? Um, so I was just going, I don't know if I want to save it for later, but I'll go ahead and just throw it in right now. Um, you mentioned something about um, the the transmission being a, a public Good. Um, and I, I was wondering if you could um, elaborate a little bit more on, on that and what you mean by the um, transmission being a public good. I actually agree with you on that, maybe for different reasons, though. So <laughs> clarify. Yeah, well, um, I mean, it's sort of like national defense in that everybody benefits from it and everybody sort of uses it, you know, to live in a safe country that is defended. Um, you know, everybody, citizens of countries like to have national defense. And, um, you know, so it's kind of a shared benefit in the technical economic policy terms. A public good has a precise definition of being non-rival and non-excludable. In other words, if I use some, I, it's not I'm not taking away your consumption of it. Um, so it's kind of, you know, electrons free 
freely flow or, around the system and I can't, you know, keep you, keep you off. Um, uh, it's a little bit different with certain technologies and HVDC, which is controllable from point to point, but on the shared AC network, which is still where most of the networks will be, it's sort of free flowing power. Um, so it's kind of hard to kind of keep, uh, keep people from uh, using it. So, um, you know, it is of shared benefit. And when you look at see, these severe weather instances where, you know, we keep seeing Winter storm Yuri and Elliot over in the eastern interconnection when you have tens of gigawatts moving from one region to the next to save the day and keep the lights on, at least when they have that capacity compared to Texas that didn't have the capacity and they they lost power. Uh, you see that um, reliability and resilience value that is kind of an insurance value for the whole system um, pretty, pretty clearly. So I think somehow we keep seeing that looking after the fact, somehow prospectively when we plan, we need to take that public reliability resilience value into, into account. And and so uh, and I hear Kathleen say there's only cost allocation, there's only a, a, you know, a certain number of ways you can do it. So when something's a public good, and of course uh, you, you mentioned uh, trying to get the, the tax credit, um, but that would have only still been 30% um not not the full cost so I, i'm just curious what's what's your opinion on on how we should do cost allocation um for transmission it's is only a portion of it a public good um or or you know yeah how, how do we do that yeah well I, I think there's um alignment of um uh, economics and law here. The economics would say do a regional benefit cost analysis and then, uh, you know, determine what maximizes net benefits and then allocate the costs according to those benefits. So, um, you know, I think a lot of those benefits would be common across the whole region for the public goods reasons we just discussed, but some of them, some areas load might benefit from more congestion reduction than others. So, you know, the economist answer is assign more cost to those who benefit more. Um, uh, lo and behold, that lines up perfectly with the law under the Federal Power Act, as the courts have uh, written, uh, costs for transmission need to be assigned in a way that is roughly commensurate with uh, the beneficiaries. So that's, again, the same answer. So I think, again, you, if you do this regional planning process right, you can do that benefits assessment, not just the total benefits compared to total cost, but the incidents, who gets those benefits, and you can allocate that those costs uh, accordingly. Uh, inevitably, I think there's going to be some negotiation and, you know, this is a semi-political process and probably needs to be. So there's going to be a going to need need to be a, a governance process to, you know, to sort these things out and have states and utilities involved in the in the conversation. I have I have thoughts on on that right there. Um, so if you if you had asked me probably ten years ago about what's what's fair in terms of cost allocation, um, I would have given you a different answer than than today. Um, I, I, electricity is so fundamental to every aspect of our society, um, and we benefit far beyond just the electrons that come into um, you know our homes or our our, our places of business or whatever. Um, and I would argue that you know um a, a business or you know an, an an industry the benefit of electrons going to that 
that location far outweigh the benefits that go to, for example, uh, a home, a residential home. Um, just when when you think about um, like the the externalities of of electricity. And I'm not sure that the way we do cost allocation, this is going to take us down a rabbit hole. And I know we got, we're on, we got timeline, but um, I have so many thoughts about how, um, how, how we do cost allocation and what we consider benefits when we decide to allocate those costs. And I, we are not doing it um, in, in a way that I feel promotes um, just cost allocation. Uh, but anyway, I want to stop yeah. there. We're getting into, in some ways, that becomes like retail, understanding the retail rate impacts and tax impacts of on different customers, which maybe is really a decent segue uh, yeah. into the next question when we talk about the benefits of electrons to commercial and industrial customers. Uh, so we'll hit the typewriter and post. Uh, Amaz, key up the next question. All right. So a March 22nd article in the Seattle Times Pacific Northwest Magazine section by Brendan Kiley titled, Seattle Utilities Consider Massive Efforts That Could Help Green Our Grid, covered the way participation in regional market and adequacy initiatives can help achieve regional goals of decarbonizing the electric grid. The article notes that the grid is a deeply interconnected, deeply social machine. Kathleen, you represent a trade organization of large commercial and industrial customers engaged um, in transmission and electric markets. So can you speak to what your organization is looking for from electric markets and where your interests lie in this deeply interconnected, deeply social um, machine? Absolutely. And I think I loved this article. Um, And I think one of the I actually pulled out of one of the lines in there that that really I think gets to that social machine piece and it and it made me smile as I was reading it. Um, and it says, if the grid is a nightclub with a decrepit floor, we don't just need to upgrade the hardwood, we need to change the way we dance. And I loved that <laughs> analogy in this in this article because I think it really um, it really humanizes the scale of the change that we're looking at right now. This is not just the wires. Um, this is this is you know, the, the way that that utilities operate their businesses, it's the way, you know, we're integrating, um, you know, even our battery systems, our, our electric cars into the grid, all the grid services piece, everything that we're doing as a society is, is going to be different um, when it comes to the electricity system. And I think, um, you know, as we're looking at an increase of electrification across sectors, um, and, and getting larger loads because we're a more uh, technical society. We have, you know, everything we have has a battery. You're plugging in your phone everywhere. Uh, you, you know, we've got electric cars. We've got our, you know, our buildings are, are electrifying. Um, and and the the loads that we need to accommodate that, whether that's data centers or chip manufacturing companies or even mining operations that are going to have to go get the lithium to actually, you know, build the batteries that we need to power all of these different uh, pieces of technology. Um, we've got a, this is, we've got a huge shift in, in front of us just from the, the scale of the electricity that we're going to need. Um, and so the, the companies that we represent really have varying sustainability and climate goals. Not everybody has a, a hundred percent carbon free of um, you know all the various stages of their operations. Not everybody has those goals, 
but everybody wants to lower cost and everybody wants to keep the lights on and the power running. <clears throat> it's a it's a bottom line issue for many of them. If you think about a think about a chip manufacturing company um, who is is its chips are going through some part of the process that if the power cuts out, you've ruined that batch of chips. That's a huge hit to mm-hmm. a bottom line for that company. Mm-hmm. So keeping the power on uh, is imperative uh, for the, for their economic viability. Um, so we so the so customers have a, a lot of interest in this. They have a lot of interest in seeing some system that can meet all of those goals: their climate goals, their affordability goals, their reliability goals. Um, and I think from a from a Western Freedom standpoint, we've actually we've worked with Rob um, to put together and his team um, to put together this customer position statement that outlines why large commercial and industrial customers support the development of a regional transmission organization in the West and what components are important in a well-designed market. And some of those things are um, spot energy markets. So seeing the, the it's going to need to include those real-time and day-ahead markets that we're seeing now. Obviously, the, the real-time markets are well-developed in the West, especially the EIM. Um, and we're seeing now this implementation of the day-ahead markets beginning. And so that's that's going to be a really important component. Um, effective regional independent integrated transmission service. So having regional, having the independent, um, that's a really important component of this. Uh, the planning and the cast the cost allocation pieces obviously are are really important too. So because that's just going to make the entire system more efficient and cost effective um, and maximize those benefits. Resource adequacy planning. And then uh, a transparent, equitable, and independent governance structure uh, that's going to benefit all of the customers and maintain state autonomy and engagement. So making sure that the the regulators in each of those states still has has control over resource planning, still has control over um, rate setting. Those kinds of things are going to to stay with the states. Having a structure that um, respects state policy uh, from one one place to another, and, and figuring out how that GHG accounting is actually going to work um, to ensure that we that that again we're maximizing the footprint um, and bringing the the most cost effective resources to the system um, for the for the benefit of the whole. Um, you know, I think right now, obviously, we've got from a customer standpoint, we think that the day ahead market developments that are happening in the West are great incremental step. Uh, and, and it kind of feels at this point, like the West has officially decided we are not, we're not ready to jump fully into an RTO. We can't, it's, it's a lot, it's a big commitment. We're not, we're not ready to do that. Um, and so, so this, so the, the implementation, the successful launch of a day ahead market is, is really an imperative next step to keep that momentum going. Um, the, the RAP program, which we were talking about a little bit earlier, and I know you guys have um, have, have spent quite a quite a bit of time talking with Sarah and the Western Power Pool team on. Um, that's another really important step, and 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 I think addresses some of the RA needs that we have um, in the West. Um, but I think if we're gonna if we're really gonna maximize all of those benefits, it needs to include that transmission piece, all of the things that we've been talking about here today. 
um, and we need to consolidate the balancing authorities, and it's got to cover the largest geographic footprint. Rob spoke at the beginning about the the benefits of of your time zones and and being bigger than the weather, uh, and so that's something that that is really important to customers too. You want to maximize those benefits. You want, you got to maximize your footprint. Um, so so customers are really engaged at this point, and and I think you know starting to to show up in places that they haven't before. But I will say, I've had some conversations with some of the customers that we that we represent, and they don't want to be utilities. They want to go work on their things. They want to go manufacture stuff, and they want to go build their data centers and and deliver the the whatever the services is that the services are that they provide, without having to to manage their own you know energy system because it's not being done for them. So I think that's so so I think that that, that was a, a a statement that somebody made to me that really resonated. We don't we're not in the utility business. We don't want to be a utility. We want our utilities to go create a system that maximizes benefits for us. Yeah, and I'll I'll just kind of reflect back. Uh, hearing the message that we don't want to be utilities is I think helpful for electric utility enthusiasts like us uh, <laughs> because when you talk about like this presence of a spot market, like the red flag goes up and be like, do they want the presence of the spot market so they don't have to have resource adequacy standards? So that's a great clarification there. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big, um, it's a big deal. If you've got if the customers have a system that they can that they can participate with that's being it's being offered by their utilities. They're they're not interested in getting into a different business. They got they got their hands are full as it is. One of the things we've talked about in Public Power Underground, uh, and I find intriguing, is the necessity within um, zero or low marginal cost energy system uh, with a lot of renewables. The need for load to participate in the bid in for market clearing prices in order to keep rational market clearing prices, if that makes sense. So you don't end up with these large, uh, very volatile spot markets because you ha- you can actually um, uh, meet, like have a reasonable meeting of uh, your big curves. Uh, but I will channel Almaz uh, because one of the things that I have gathered from, and, and I think Almaz you've grounded me in is the value of energy is a lot higher than our retail cost of electricity. Um, and and making, like, yeah. I think that, that as we evolve this market, this participation by load, um, it'll be really interesting, I think, to consider how all of that marginal pricing kind of resolves if you have load bidding in. But to me, that is a great value of what we're trying to do um, with markets uh, in the energy transition is participation of load into the bid-in bid and demand um, and and making sure those types of loads that you're talking about are responsive to uh, the the increased penetration of renewable energy. Rob, did you want to get any in on this at all? Or we are running out of time. You want to pivot to the next one? Yeah, well, just real quick. I, I, I do think on that on that point, a, a region and a set of utilities can largely preserve their institutional structure and their resource planning and, and things like that while you have a platform of spot markets and while you have a transition planning process and a resource adequacy regime we're seeing in the West. Those are looking like they might be under three different roofs. Um, so it's good to do those things, but they don't 
they don't have to upend um you know the basic structure of an industry um and what the utilities are doing and what PUCs are doing in terms of integrated resource planning etc nice i think we covered that one nicely um and we also also running out of time so i'm going to pivot to the next one we'll hit the typewriter um, and then we're going to talk about some interconnection processes. This is fun stuff. Okay, uh, Rob, at the beginning, you did talk about these stressors on our transmission system that include the need to uh, connect new generator sources to the grid, uh, the electrification of end-use loads that Kathleen has talked about, and this 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 issue of larger weather patterns and needing a grid that spans the largest weather events. Um, are like three things that are really in this energy transition and and like within global warming are changing the, our transmission needs. So let's talk, but I don't, I want to focus on the first one because we haven't hit that one too hard yet, which is the need for new generator interconnection. And then we can, uh, we'll probably have to transition to Almaz's insightful question week. So I'm an unabashed fan of Professor Jacob Mays and Jesse Jenkins, who have both had these recent takes on managing interconnection processes. It wasn't that long ago, Professor Mays made this point about how the way ERCOT handles interconnection requests, i.e. the connect and manage approach, is, quote, more or less incompatible with the existing resource adequacy constructs, end quote. And this past weekend, Professor Jenkins had a whole thread about Q reform, so I want to start with, from your perspective, Rob, the efficacy of the connect and manage approach compared to the more traditional invest and connect approach. And then we can maybe dig into Professor Jenkins' thread on Q reform. Um, and, but take it away. What, what, where are you <laughs> and, at on generator connections? And, and, and we're going to do all that in 30 seconds. Um, uh, no, we got yeah, like, we yeah. got, we have minutes. Gotta, we have got, minutes. Okay. minutes. All right. Yeah. No, well, look, uh, I think th the first point is around the country and much of the country, we are attempting to plan the network through the interconnection process. Okay. In lieu of yeah. actual planning, what you have is a flood of generation coming into the grid operator saying, I'd like to connect here and I'd like to connect over there. And uh, what you have is that dynamic of, you know, the next car on the road has to pay for the uh, the whole lane expansion. Um, uh, and it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. You, you, you know, you, you have to get into the mode more of proactively planning the grid first. Uh, and then <clears throat> you can get towards what I think is a much more practical approach of connect and manage. In other words, if you're the generator, you pay your own driveway um, and maybe pay some share for the road, but it's not this complicated dynamic of you have to pay for this uh, network facility 300 miles away. Uh, and then when you get the price tag, you drop out of the queue and then everybody else has to be restudied. It's a complete disaster in most of the country. And I know, uh, you know, most regions, including Bonneville, have an interconnection queue reform going on and FERC uh, does too. Um, but I, I, so I think we get towards, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a devout 
uh, Jesse Jenkinsian and Maisian uh, as well. Uh, I think they're on to the the right answer here of let's get towards a more connect and manage approach. Let's make it simpler on a generator by generator basis. It doesn't mean they pay nothing to get on the grid, but you you don't go through the you don't basically distract all the transmission planners in the country with this never-ending restudy process um, of our current sequential arrangement. <clears throat> and you get towards a, let's make it uh, simpler on a generator by generator basis with a clear uh, posted price. Um, and then um, Jacob Mays did make this point, as you said on, on Twitter, and I'm sure elsewhere, <laughs> of um, <clears throat> that connect and manage is inconsistent with um, certain regions' uh, capacity or resource adequacy regime. And that gets to this idea that um, uh, these, these processes uh, have overlap. So there's an interconnection process, there's a transmission planning process, there's a resource adequacy process, um, uh, and there's uh, markets. Um, and the the uh, there's an inter interaction between interconnection and resource adequacy, uh, where, for example, in the Northeastern RTOs, you have to pay as a generator, you have to pay enough to be quote unquote deliverable and thereby qualified to participate in the capacity market. And then some of them have actual capacity interconnection rights, which is like a separate type of transmission right. So without getting into the weeds, because every region has a, uh, you know, unique and complicated whole system. I think it just the larger point is that, yes, there is interaction between the interconnection and, uh, capacity or resource adequacy regime, um, I, I think they can be made compatible, um, <clears throat> even, the, you know, sort of in contrast to a statement that they're fundamentally incompatible. <clears throat> I, I mean, that's sort of, that's sort of true, but they can be made compatible if we work at it and make each of these systems work together better. Can I, uh, let me see if I understand this, this distinction a little bit more. Is the connect and manage approach more like the generator takes on the commercial risk of curtailment um, and is not paying for uh, like, uh, like reducing their risk through the investing in transmission infrastructure away from them on their own curtailment risk. They're just getting connected through the interconnection system and then they take all the that risk of curtailment. And that is kind of incompatible with the resource adequacy program, which would be to say, you need to make sure you can get that generator to wherever we're relying on it for, for its resource adequacy accreditation. Is that... Is that too simple uh, by uh, half? Sort of. I I think I see it slightly differently. I think the term came from the UK, where basically the the transmission utility there is in charge of the transmission system, including reducing and avoiding congestion, okay. um, which is not like most regions here. But the the transmission utility, National Grid, um, says we'll we'll take care of the grid. You you disconnect. Um, uh, as a generator, so the the generator connects, and then you know if congestion emerges in that area, it's you know there are incentive payments and penalties uh, for the national grid to resolve that congestion, which is by the way um, why they're much more innovative about grid enhancing technologies and things like that in the UK than in the US, uh, because the utility actually has an incentive to reduce the congestion, like. You know, it's their job to manage it or reduce it rather than just passively post these prices that are painful to consumers. 
Um, so um, then the term was also used in Texas. And as you know, Texas doesn't have a capacity market. So it's just the idea of, you know, you can you connect. Um, and ERCOT historically in Texas, they they proactively built transmission when they found they needed, they would build it. They weren't shy about doing quote unquote economic transmission planning. Um, uh, and uh, so yes, technically congestion risk was on the generator, but ERCOT and the utilities would build the transmission. So historically it wasn't very much. Now in, in recent years, they're getting con- congestion and curtailment and they're a little bit, a little bit less interested in building transmission to get out of it. But um uh that that's uh that's the approach it's a it's a much easier process from a generator perspective certainly to connect into a system like either the uk or ERCOT, which is partly why we've seen so much generation entering ERCOT. right yeah they make it easier to connect so you get more of it plus it's also a great wind resource let's be honest west texas has a great wind resource and great solar resource sure does yep uh kathleen did you want to get in on that or should we should we pivot and move I think I think Rob probably covered that one pretty yep. pretty thoroughly did. on this one. He did. That yeah. was great. That was great, Rob. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break. We come back. We're going to close out the episode with Almaz's insightful question of the week and Kathleen's closing thoughts. Almaz, did you know nuclear energy is America's largest source of climate-friendly power? Is that a thing you knew? I did not know that. I would have said hydro. Um, I, okay. Well, nuclear is probably in more parts of the country probably than hydro. Hydro is very river specific. I think. Yeah, I'm 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 very focused on the Northwest. In yeah, America, you're that. probably right. Yes, nuclear yeah, sounds right. Love that about you. Okay. In fact, nuclear energy provides about fifty percent of the country's carbon free electricity. And Energy Northwest, our friends at Energy Northwest, is a premier provider of carbon free electricity in the Pacific Northwest. Energy Northwest mission is to provide safe, reliable, cost effective, responsible power generation and innovative energy and business solutions to its public power members and regional customers. Energy Northwest is proudly advancing the Northwest clean energy future to learn more do you know want to do you want to know how to learn more Amaz? yeah give me the info i need to know more okay okay let's let's learn more to learn more about energy northwest visit their website at energy-northwest.com that's energy-northwest.com up next is our segment called Amaz's insightful question of the week because she's been asking our guests what she called quote unfair questions, but really turned out to be incredibly insightful if unfiltered and unscripted. So Amaz, uh, take it away. What's your question for the week? All right. So I did have two, but I've already asked one. So this one, this one um, it could be as easy or as hard as you make it. So we talked about the public good um, characteristics of the grid. So, so given those public good characteristics, um, would you say that transmission um, should be publicly owned? <laughs> On the public power underground, should I say? <laughs> and I'm saying that, it, I'm, of course, in Norway, where the vast majority of their transmission is publicly owned. So. <laughs> it is. Look, uh, I mean, there there is an argument for it in that, um, you know, having essentially taxpayers pay a big share um, in addition to ratepayers, uh, there's there's an argument for that for you know significant public goods. Um, 
you know, on the other hand, uh, there are not too many people. I, I'm in the Washington, D.C. area. There's not too many people who um, at least consensus around, you know, funding a lot more things uh, through taxpayer expenditures and different states may take their own you know, approach on that. Moreover, we do have a whole utility industry that doesn't have any trouble getting capital um, to invest. Um, and we have third-party uh, transmission investors and utility transmission investors. Um, now, one can argue that uh, there's a lower cost of capital if you did it uh, through public power, um, but that's sort of... Um, you know, is kind of, uh, I guess, ideological about how much of our economy should be publicly owned. And uh, I know uh, public power underground listeners probably, uh, you know, enjoy reading about the the history of the early debates about uh, public ownership versus private utility ownership of the the dams and the delivery systems. And, um, you know, there were allegations of socialism back then, and there would be allegations of socialism now. Um, and, you know, private interests that have their own political power that would be fighting for a, a role. So I, I don't have an answer uh, <laughs> on, on, on any of that. That's, uh, that's more ideological. And that is why I call it an unfair question. That's, that's right. right. That's right. Uh, you know, in, in the Northwest, we frequently fight off the attempts to privatize the federal system, the transmission system in the Northwest. So Amaz is shifting the Overton window and being like, no, instead we should that's do right, the opposite. Right. <laughs> Kathleen, you got to get in on this question. I, I, I'll probably end up in the same place that Rob did with a sort of like, ah. Uh, however, I do, think you know, this is, we're talking about a, a shift of a system that's that's been in existence for so long. We've got this, you know, utilities have been these monopolies for so long. They've been the ones who have been, you know, sort of in charge of building all the infrastructure that we need and sort of flipped that entirely on its head um, is, a, is a really big deal. Having said that, we're, we're in a time of a big change for what we need to do for the future. So, um, it, it may be it might be possible uh and it might be necessary at least in part uh so uh, so it's uh i think it's a great question i think you know we have to we have to kind of consider all the options at this point figure out what's going to make the most sense and and benefit the ratepayers at the end of the day can i add one little customers zinger? not ratepayers customers, customers not ratepayers customers yes. customers. <laughs> Sorry. customers our community <laughs> members Yes. Our yes. Owners are customer owners. Okay, go ahead, Rob. <laughs> well, uh, let me just say this: uh, uh, if you do, to the extent you do already have public power, like a large uh, um, power marketing administration that owns eighty percent of the transmission system in the Northwest, i.e., Bonneville, um, how about they? do everything they can on this area. So they've got borrowing authority uh, that's waiting to be used. Uh, they know how to plan the transmission system. There's a lot of customers on different sides uh, of that system who, who want it. So maybe getting out of the incremental subscription-based approach and doing some proactive planning with that borrowing authority would be the, the next best thing to do. Ooh, I like. Nice, nice, <laughs> yes. Rob. Nice. Okay. Thank you, Almaz, for that insightful question. Before we get to closing thoughts with Kathleen, I just wanted to say how much I appreciate all of you. Rob, do you feel valued and appreciated? I do. Thank you very much. Kathleen, do you feel like you were seen and heard? Absolutely. 
Good. That's what we're going for. Almaz, do you feel like you're valued, appreciated, seen, heard, and like you belong? Always, Paul. <laughs> nailed it. We nailed it. Uh, that's all the energy and energy adjacent news we're covering this week. We're closing out the episode with closing thoughts from Kathleen Stacks. Well, thank you, guys. This has been a, a really fun um, episode, and I'm thrilled to be able to participate. And I think uh, to kind of close things out, you know, Western Freedom is a campaign, uh, and we're focused on getting the maximum benefits for the large customers that we represent. There's a lot of momentum on market development happening in the West, but the campaign is helping build the trust and the relationships and the forums that are that are necessary to overcome the challenges we still have ahead of us to get to that maximum benefit end state. We've talked a lot about those challenges today and, and certainly building out a transmission system that can support the scale of the electrified, decarbonized future that we have ahead of us is one of the most important efforts that we need to undertake. Implementing a system that can make that effort more efficient and effective across the largest footprint possible is what we believe is necessary to achieve all of our collective goals. There's no singular or perfect solution to the challenges we face in the electricity in the electricity sector and the diversity of priorities and needs and resources across the, the region that we that we work in um, make this process even more complex. But the status quo is not an option. And as uncomfortable and challenging as change may be at times, it also brings enormous opportunity. We have the most creative brains and perspectives in this sector, and I think we can be we can solve any of these challenges and get where we need to be uh, to meet all the needs that that the transmission needs study has demonstrated, and all of the the resource studies show that we need to get to. So I think we've got a lot of exciting times ahead of us, and these conversations and and tapping into the the smart brains that we have in this sector are what are, is going to get us there. So thanks for having us. We started in hard times to bring us all in Into the laughter through thick and through thin For public power enthusiasts without and within Roll on enthusiasts, roll on Public Power Underground is a production of Seattle City Light and News Data. The views expressed to your own and not the official views of Seattle City Light, Tacoma Power, News Data, or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. Today's episode is written and produced by Paul Dockery and Almaz Nagesh, and it's edited and published by the stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources with sound mixing by Lucas Smith and video editing by Brendan Delzer. Our theme song, Roll on Enthusiasts, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. You don't have to be subscribed to News Data's weekly newsletters to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch.